Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hi, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Bombay Bicycle Club and producer Jim Abyss to talk about how the album I Had the Blues But I Shook Them Loose was recorded and produced. Bombay Bicycle Club are a genre-hopping band from North London, comprising of frontman Jack Steadman, guitarist Jamie McColl, drummer Surinder Saram, and bassist Ed Nash. Forming at school, they have a remarkable history which takes them from winning the Battle of the Bands competition The Road to V to a four-album international musical career to date. The first incarnation of the band was when the boys met as students and began playing under the name The Canals, having performed together in a school assembly. In these early years, they switched between various aliases until they adopted Bombay Bicycle Club, named after a now-defunct chain of Indian restaurants. The lineup changed regularly until the summer of 2006 when Ed joined the band after a chance meeting at the unlikely setting of a funeral. They initially hooked up with producer Jim Abyss to work on their first two EPs, which led to them recording the debut album together. The band has since gone on to release the album's Flaws, A Different Kind of Fix and So Long See You Tomorrow, before a brief hiatus to pursue solo projects in 2016. The group are now back together and are working on a new album. Jim Abyss is a British music producer with an impressive back catalogue who is best known for his work on records including the Arctic Monkeys Mercury Music Prize winning album Whatever People Say I Am That's What I'm Not and the Adele albums 19 and 21. He started his music career playing keyboards with Peterborough band The Pleasureheads before getting his first studio job at Spacewood Studios near Cambridge in 1986 where he trained under Maverick engineer and producer Owen Morris. He went freelance in 1990 and has worked with The Orb, Björk, Massive Attack, DJ Shadow and Kasabian amongst many others. It was whilst producing the track My Yvonne for Jack Peniati that Jim met Adele, who was singing some backing vocals for Jack. He was immediately blown away by her voice and asked if she had her own demos. It was that question that led him to work on her debut album 19. Today, I'm here at Iguana Studios with Jack and Surin from Bombay Bicycle Club and Jim to talk about their work together on I Had the Blues But I Shook Them Loose. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. Right. 
It is evening morning, Bombay Bicycle Club getting us in the frame of mind for I Had the Blues But I Shook Them Loose. We're going to talk about three different tracks from that album going way, way back with a little help from Jack from the band. Hello, Jack. Hello. And Surin from the band. Hello, how you doing? And Jim Abyss, the producer Hello. of it all. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so we're all sat in a studio together. Um, we discussed how we were going to start this and we're actually going to go back to Foundation recording a demo of one of the tracks that eventually made it to that debut album so i mean i guess we should work out how you all met because jim you got involved with bombay basketball club at a a very early stage that's right well i i actually used to work in the studio with uh, jamie the guitarist dad um, a very small studio near cambridge and he was in a band and used to use the studio regularly and i was the t-boy and we just became friends. So and this is Neil McColl. This is Neil McColl, um, yeah. Who was in a band called The Bible. That's correct, yeah. Uh, great band, actually. And um, so we became friends and stayed in touch and worked on various things over the years. And out of the blue one day, he ran me and said, um, my son's in a band. Do you want to come and see them? <laughs> <laughs> How many kind of emails, dreading that day. But, yeah. How many emails like that do you get per day? <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly few, actually. But um, yeah, I think it was a sign of our age, really. Uh, so yeah, I went to see a gig in Islington. Uh, not sure the venue now. Um, I think you would have been maybe 15. Yeah, 15 or, or 16. Yeah, and just really loved the, the show. So Yeah. Wow. So, that, so there was a connection, um, but it dragged you to... Uh, the venue, and you got to see them and thought, actually, this is good. I'm glad I've seen Neil's son's band. Absolutely, yeah, completely. Yeah. And and they yeah, they, they played really well, but it was the, the tunes and the songwriting that I was drawn to, really. Um, and, yeah, so we just stayed in touch and eventually arranged to do a, a little trial recording together just yeah. to see how you guys would be in the studio and if we'd get on and have similar ideas. So it's very much a little suck-it-and-see few days together. Mm. Which would have been your first experiences of recording presumably, recording in a studio recording with properly. somebody. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you'd been recording in your bedroom uh, or a rehearsal room? Did you have a rehearsal space? So I'd been making demos in my room but like for a long time, even before I met everyone in the band, mm. which I think is what we're about to hear. But other than that, yeah, we were just playing shows and rehearsing in like a warehouse in Tottenham somewhere, I think, wasn't it? Edmonton. Yeah, it was in some industrial estate, like quite far up north, wasn't it? Yeah. It was definitely a shock coming to the studio and hearing a pristine version of what we sounded like for the first time. And I can remember clearly Jim being like, let's try it in time now. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was definitely a steep learning curve. But, yeah. um, but there was some energy there, I think. Yeah. I mean, you were very young at this point. And, and because uh, people are aware of the history of the Road to V and, and winning that and opening up the V Festival. And they're aware of that. But where does this fall into that kind of timeline as it were so was this still part you were still on the road to v at this point i think the road to v had already happened hadn't it right okay. so yeah so yeah the band my well, very first gig as a band would have been our school assembly that was 2015 wasn't it so that was the 2005 the, sorry Not i keep getting a decade ahead of myself <laughs> 2005 yes right so that was at school assembly and um, then was that when you thought oh let's take part in this battle of the bands thing just to, uh, just for fun and it actually Basically, yeah, and um, it actually went pretty badly, but we decided to carry on for some reason. Then we had a couple of friends that started putting on these underage nights because, you know, obviously we were 15, all our friends were 15, 16 at that time. So there were kind of limited venues we could actually play at. And then, yeah, Jamie, our guitarist, just entered us into this Road to V competition to open V Festival, and then which we ended up winning, which was a huge deal at the time. Yeah, that's 
very exciting. We were just running around backstage at V Festival, like overexcited <laughs> schoolboys, making fools of ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then so the recording with Jim would have been soon after that, I think. Um, yeah. Right. So yeah. by the time you met them, Jim, I mean, they had quite a bit of experience in a way for 15 year olds. You know, it's because most 15 year olds in bands haven't had as much experience as that, really. Well, yeah, they, I mean, they had lots of ideas about how to put tracks together and had played a lot together which is great and actually sort of undervalued the fact that they had played a lot together because they had their own they'd created their own sound in their own way and I think a lot of bands and I'm sure you were the same you were probably frustrated by the limitations maybe of your sound of what Mm -hmm. equipment you had yeah but you'd got the best out of it because you'd use that all the time and so that's always a good starting point I think as bands naturally get the best out of what they have so yeah we're already were in a good state but as you say, for the idea of a pristine recording, I think it's just having stuff magnified in the mm. studio because yeah. you listen over and over to something. You hear it, the, the clarity of everything if you choose to record that way. And that can be a shock. And mm. uh, everyone gets fixated on accuracy, often mm-hmm. too much, I think. Um, and it's, yeah, that can be just, uh, you know, unnerving at first. Mm. But you handled it pretty well, I thought. <laughs> so maybe at this point we should listen to the demo that Jack had made in his bedroom, of the song that eventually became... Um, Cancel On Me. Cancel On Me. Yeah. Um, so this song had a different title, I think. Uh, it's called Never, Never Serious. Serious. Never Serious. Yeah. So, um, And this is just you on your own? Or, yeah, so yeah. this is... I can remember my dad bought me a little multi-track thing from PC World, and I think the program I was using was called Magic's Music Maker 8 or something. <laughs> and But I was obsessed with it, and it was it would be all I'd think about at school, and then I'd come home and just make these tracks, just myself and like put out albums and try and make artwork for them and and then so meeting the guys was like the first time I actually had an outlet to not only share the music but to play it with people as well yeah amazing we're going to hear that now There's a bongo on there. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it reminds me of the, a little bit of the um, of that Primal Scream track on the Train Spotting soundtrack. Yeah, you know, that yeah, the start yeah. of it. it probably is influenced by that. <laughs> So this is all you, Jack? Yeah. Wow. And so then you would have taken this to Surin and the rest of the band to, to listen to. And what would have been your reaction to this when, when you would have heard it for the first time? I mean, would you have been listening to the drums specifically and thinking, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, we were just very lucky because, yeah, as soon as the band started, we kind of had this, because Jack had been writing songs on his own since 
what the age of like 11 12 or yeah so we kind of instantly had this like quite extended back catalogue of some pretty great material and then kind of we each had something to go off from there so yeah i'll just kind of take the drums and go from there yeah so so you brought that demo to the band and then the band learned that song or and worked up a, a version of it which you would have been performing live yeah i think we would have been playing that in jamie's basement and right sort of fleshing it out as a band uh, so, making it more into a song and taking the bongos out. <laughs> <laughs> but you returned to bongos later. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so then, then when you went to Jim, you'd have had a live version that you'd have worked up to be able to play to Jim or for Jim in the studio. Well, it's funny, I, I actually had never heard that demo um, and, until today. I'd love it, actually. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Um, uh, normally, I would have, I mean, I always ask to hear demos and I, and I think the only reason I didn't hear it was probably because you'd, worked out a new version of yeah, that song to actually make it into a band version and also that first session was a it was a kind of trying to be a, a fun let's see what happens in the studio rather than too organized and formal yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah so the, i would normally hear a demo and then we would either get together for a rehearsal or just run through the, the songs at the start of the session and just talk about any little arrangement tweaks we want to make and it was a case of can we add some things just to for texture or to make things more exciting or bigger or whatever more expansive it was really that for that for that session well i remember it was the first time we sampled something uh, this was like a life-changing moment for me then it worked perfectly with Ye the picture yeah of the song. I, yes but that was a revelation to you jack that that somebody could take something from somewhere else bring it in to what you were doing and it's like oh hang on a minute that that works perfectly yeah that was a bug that i definitely caught which was a very expensive bug Right. To then clear all those samples that we've had to over the last 10 years. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So that thing of using somebody else's original recording and getting so attached to it that you can't. I just realized it was a way for an introvert to make music with other people without them being there. Yeah. And so and this is interesting because um, you're describing yourself as the introvert. You've got this band around you now. You're sharing your demos with them mm. and they're working up your songs. And... Would you just right? Here's the here's the recording. Get on with it, or would you be saying, "I think this should be like this, or this should be like that"? And what I'm trying to achieve with this song is this. Would would you explain yourself in that way, or would it, you know, as a bunch of fifteen year olds kind of looking at their feet and shuffling around, <laughs> it might be well, you know, a bit of guesswork on. I think it's demo. much simpler to for me to get my ideas across on a demo. It doesn't have to be a good one, but just doing it rather than trying to talk about it mm. i mean i'm sure jim you remember us struggling slightly with expressing in words how we wanted something to sound or yeah how we were f even feeling sometimes and i think that's something we always had trouble with just, like putting into words a musical idea I th yeah i can remember we <laughs> we had a conversation and uh, i'm sure it was very kind of uh school teacher and pupils probably <laughs> and i think we'd worked on something and two days later you'd said I was never really sure about that guitar sound we yeah, got. Yeah. I was like, why didn't you tell me? Like, I didn't know what to say. You know? We had to kind of work out a way of, didn't matter if you couldn't describe exactly what you meant, you should please be honest because, yeah, yeah we'd built so much around that sound now. It was very difficult to take it out. I and still do that it. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. It's, it's often, I think you're right, though. It's often easier just to just plug in and go, it's kind of like this rather than yeah. try and describe a sound or... 
you know, it and needs to be like that record, blah, blah, blah. Technology now means you can send someone off with their laptop to mm -hmm. another room. And that's something I really enjoy doing now, because if something isn't feeling right, instead of me stopping everything and stopping everyone else's momentum and saying, come trying to explain what I want to be fixed, I can yeah. just say, all right, give me 10 minutes, yeah. take it away, do it in my own time. And then it's a really great way of working. It also keeps um, people busy when inevitably, like if you're doing a band recording, there are times when you're editing and listening or whatever mm. that people can't be involved. And I think the downtime in sessions is can be a negative thing I for people. I could be fluent in German right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. If I actually got my act together. <laughs> but so to clarify, Cancel On Me was part of the first EP, The Boy yeah. I Want To Be, but it's yeah. also on this album. Um, yeah. And is it the same recording yeah, I think for each of those releases? We redid the drums, but I think it might be exactly the same apart from that. Yeah. Right, okay. So, um, and yeah. it's been remixed as well. I think we we mixed anything that we'd used from an earlier session, we mixed together yeah. at the end just yeah. to try and get a bit more continuity. I think that's something that we were talking about earlier, the idea of, uh, because it was recorded over several sessions, over, I guess, two years, um, it's difficult to keep a kind of continuity within mm. the sound and the ideas because everyone mm. evolves so much um, over that time. But everything we hear today relating to Cancel On Me ended up on the version that we hear on, on the debut album. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I think looking back, that was kind of cool that we did that. I think a lot mm. of people might think, oh, we should probably do this again. But just the same as you hearing a song and th saying, oh, not much needs to be done, mm. takes a lot more experience and skill than someone sort of being insecure and thinking that they have to do loads of stuff. Just something I've learned, yeah. like producing other people now. You know, you have to be experienced to not touch something. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. And there are lots of different sorts of ways of producing, but I think uh, the way I like to work is to try and get the best from you because mm. you're already doing things that a lot of people have liked mm. for very valid reasons. Why would you want to change it unless there's an idea of something artistically you want to do differently? Yeah. What should we listen to first then from this session that led well, to the recording? There's a thing in here which I think think came from your demo this okay. this pad sound was this from your demo or did we re-record depends how good it sounds otherwise <laughs> i'm gonna blame you <laughs> yeah uh this one yeah that's so you can demo. hear that in the demo from me from yeah. the, the oh, really right. early demo yeah, right. so that's probably from the, the never old, serious demo. yeah amazing that's the same sound so that's i love that sound i love what is it? That's PC World 8-track, is isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and this other thing that... There's another sound on here which uh, I called Shimmer. And I'm not sure what this is. Let's hear it. I think that's wow. from the studio. But I don't remember how we no did that. No idea what that is. That sounds cool. Is that a Ebo? It sounds like maybe uh, um, scraping the really mm. top end of a guitar with a um, an XLR, doing that kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. There'd be loads of things like that where, f for us, it being the first studio experience, you instantly learn all these cool tricks. Like, basically, just Jim taught us loads of weird things that we never knew about, and it's so exciting. And I think as you get older and make more music and have more sessions, you're just building this vocabulary of, like cool sounds and combining them and doing like but that sounds mirroring your sound from home it's to me that sounds like 
if it's something we did together, I heard the sound that you'd done on your on the pad, uh, and thought, how how can we get another texture to come in? Because it's doing a similar kind of thing, it's like I a see. couple of octaves up. So I was inspired by the demo. That thinking, so. how can I take credit for this? Yeah. <laughs> I can't just leave it as. Let me put something on it. So yeah, let me change this point. It was all my like idea. Like I said earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but this is interesting because these are the textures behind the song, in a way, behind the version that the band had worked up together already. Yeah. Um, and I'd have thought these would have been added after you'd have got a performance or. or oh, done. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, although I think, I, from memory, I think we probably had that pad sound running when we ran through the live takes, just because it's a good thing, to, a good texture to have in Provide. there. Yeah. Because we knew we were going for, um, the core of what we did when we recorded was going to be a live take, yeah. even if we then messed around with it, manipulated it, whatever we decided to redo or add on top. And I was very much, I guess, because of the technology available then and the, the sort of things I was into, I wanted to get the sound as close as possible to the record uh, finish sound when we were actually recording. So mm-hmm. I know the first experience for you in the studio was one of tedium a lot of the time because <laughs> we spent a lot of time messing around with moving mics around, changing drums, retuning things, moving amps all over the place. And I'm sure you were thinking, what on earth are they doing? <laughs> um, we're just here to play a song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only three minutes. What you um, yeah, but uh, we did that a lot. So... Uh, I think we would have had that in because we were trying to get a completeish picture. So when you came back in the room to hear it, it's like, oh, this makes sense, you know, what we're trying to do with it already rather than expecting it to be changed loads afterwards. Yeah, sure. That's interesting because that's something that I am guilty of straying away from. And now I think the way I used to make music has won over, like where if you're just yourself and, and a computer and you have to run around a room to play each instrument, you don't want to be recording for a long time. So I'm playing like a bad take of something and then fixing it all on a computer. Yeah, And that's something that I haven't been able to stop. And I I don't know which one's more interesting. Like you can get a lot of cool results from chopping up something being played not so well. Yeah, But then you can also get beautiful results from spending a whole day putting mics perfectly around a drum kit and it sounding beautiful. Yeah. I think... It's always been a fight between those two things for me. I think it's you get great things also when you combine them. And I think yeah. that's what we did with your stuff because we took lots of things from your demos because we liked what you'd done already. Yeah, and there's yeah. things that you couldn't do at home and we could do them better. So we did them hopefully better in the studio. Yeah. Well, I think we need to hear a burst of the song to, to get an idea of, of um, <laughs> if I just play it now, what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because you you listen to it and you hear the guitars but i can hear the drones that you had just shown us mm. yeah. earlier and and they're, they're they're a great way of gluing it all together aren't they yeah and it's interesting going back to this record now because when i listened to cancel on me my immediate thought was of sonic youth I'd, a, a band i'd never really thought about in conjunction with bombay bicycle club i'd never really thought that you were a 90s uh, or that era inspired band but I the, think we were 100%. Right. And yeah. yeah, it's probably why I was so drawn to you because it, that, that, those guitars 
I, I really like that kind of Lee Ronaldo, um, Thurston Moore combination. Yeah, sure. No, um, that was definitely an influence. Them right. and Pavement and right. all those bands. Yeah. And so with two guitarists in the band playing against or with each other, how did you work that out as, as a group? I mean, did you find that you each had particular strengths? that you would, right, oh, well, actually, Jamie's really good at doing this kind of thing, so I'm going to let him do that, and then I can play this on top or vice versa. I'm not really sure. There definitely wasn't a, like a traditional rhythm and lead separation. It must have just happened naturally because mm. I don't remember any conscious decision of, oh, this I'll definitely play this bit. Yeah, and in terms of the instruction for the drums for, for Cancel On Me, I mean, was there an instruction, or did you just, sir, and you just kind of thought, right, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this? yeah. I've got um, a very strong memory of you playing drums and I turn my head and Jim's on the sofa with this um, rhythm machine or something and it tells you what the tempo is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we'd always drift in and out. And I rem you like really whipped us into shape yeah. for those sessions because we were a fairly loose band, I think. Yeah, and I, I was, I was going to say, I mean, we. I remember immediately after setting up in that room in Lincolnshire in the chapel yeah. and then... We just ran through all the potential songs we yeah. might record, and I think we recorded all of those takes, and they're they're floating around somewhere. And I mean, they're pretty horrific, pretty ropey. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't really want anyone to ever hear those. <laughs> um, I mean, is that your memory of it, Jim? That you had to whip these boys into shape? Um, uh, not as quite as, as strongly as that, but I think it was dependent on what sort of song it was. And this song, absolutely right, is a really sort of on it driving rhythm so if this kind of drum part isn't um really you know in time and on it it's just going to sound sloppy there are other sorts of things which are much more syncopated where Soren's playing or jazzier beats or whatever mm. around the kit which you like a bit of movement in there otherwise it sounds sterile but something like this i think has to be almost metronomic um but he responded great to that i mean we, i've never been someone as that has a de facto right just do anything you want then i will just go through and chop everything exactly in time it's never been my way of working and we didn't need to with with Soren anyway but um uh we did you know we just did what we needed to do and um got great takes and then spent a long time editing the best bits of all the of all the things really that mm. was my approach to it um but it was the first time you'd really played intensely with click tracks yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah with yeah. a goal to getting something particular i think yeah I remember recording a couple of demos with um, Jamie's dad, wasn't it? I think that was the very first time we were actually in a studio as a band. That was the very first time we worked with a click track. But yeah, I mean, this this first session with Jim, that was the... It's yeah, well, we definitely yeah. all, all learned could, a lot, for sure. In a it could be make or break, in a way, for a bunch of 15-year-olds to go into a studio and actually to have to be disciplined and, and um, slog away at something for a while. Could make them think... This isn't as much fun as it was when we were in Jamie's basement just mucking about. Sure. A lot of people are lazy yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to have a kind of, you know, dedication to it, a work ethic to want to get it really good, I think. And fortunately, they did. So we got some good results. But you could easily just go, oh, sod it. Let's just leave it how it is. Mm. Um, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, especially, you know, given the age of the of the players at that point and, um, you know, your experience at this point, Jim. You know, I mean, you've you've worked with a lot of new young musicians. Mm -hmm over time and you know clearly you must have some uh combination of patience but also great chemistry great, great ability to to understand and work with 15 year olds who could be monosyllabic uh uncommunicative <laughs> yeah. um should no, we talk about this yeah, uh, <laughs> is that the case or what i mean because um, it, it just strikes me that 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 could be a challenge in itself you know it, as any teacher might 
know that even though you might have the brightest and in theory engaged pupils, they might also be looking out the window and not really responding and you'll get the wrong impression about them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you need to find the path of least resistance and, and maybe pick a tune that people are playing well and start with that one. Because I think if you get through to a good, really good version of it as soon as possible, it gives everybody confidence. If we we done it in a different order maybe or started with a track that was particularly difficult, mm. easily you could have just got jarred off and given up on it. But... Yeah, for Does sure. that make sense? I think it's so interesting because most people, when they think of producers and how to produce an album, they just think of sounds or maybe some direction of performance. But so much of it is about momentum, I think, yeah. and and how people are feeling when they're playing. And it's almost like you're a, a therapist in some <laughs> cases, like making sure that everyone's in a good state of mind. Yeah. I don't know, maybe not with us, but that's been my experiences recently of sessions. Mm. So, so the psychology of it all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because as we go back 10 years to the, this album, you were just emerging as, as people, really. And you know, Jim had to, to cope with this in a way. Well, I, I very much wanted their ideas. I wanted to get to the point where it could be collaborative as soon as possible. I didn't want just my ideas on there because their ideas were brilliant and that's what people wanted to hear. So it was a combination of, you know, just trying to keep the, the momentum, as you say, the momentum going, but not dominate it at all. I, mm. I hope that was the case. And so w- after um, working on Cancel on Me, you know, when did you think, actually, things are really, you know, was it within this, that one day, that first session? Because you could have, you, both parties could record, have walked away from record, each other. We recorded the, the, the Hill first, didn't we? Wasn't that... That it would have been, yeah. I think we started with the hill, and then we and that was relatively easy. And then I think we did this next, and this was a bit more involved. Um, sure. And we needed to change the sounds a bit, and it's uh, a bit more dynamic and a bit more yeah. sort of, yeah. We wanted to fine tune it a bit more, probably. Yeah, and the ending section on this with all the extra guitars. This was interesting because, you know, distortion. You can go many different ways and go very rock with it, and we had to kind of get sounds that were in the, the palette of what you guys liked, because I think you were really into the broken social scene, I'm pretty sure you were into it at the time. Yeah. And it's they have very particular guitar tones. And it was kind of finding, trying to find, because you were very shy and didn't want to say too much, <laughs> kind of drawing out of you what sort of tones and things you liked and reference points of records, you know, that broken social scene and something you, you could arguably put in a similar area at times, but there's many other things we could have got, many other roads we could have gone down Definitely. with the guitars that wouldn't have been appropriate. But but also, I mean, so many bands have been inspired by Sonic Youth and um, taken it one way and, you know, it goes into feedback and goes mm. into exploring the noise aspect yeah, of yeah. that. And that was so kind of controlled and, and worked so well in contrast to Jack's voice that that really gave Bombay Bicycle Club your identity. You know, some of those ingredients being there, but, you know, you weren't just trying to ape the things that you were inspired by, that you were trying to do your own individual version of what you regarded as good music, which is what you had picked up on, Jim, I think. Uh, very much. I don't, we, we never sat down and, uh, as, with an agenda of, well, these are our reference points. Let's, you know, listen to them for 10 hours and then we're ready to record it. I mean, there's that famous story about Oasis, isn't there, where they listened to all the Beatles songs in succession, apparently, and then <laughs> they were in the right space to go and record an album, whichever one it was. Um, it, it wasn't like that. It was just kind of referencing certain certain bands and certain things, but doing your own thing. Mm. Yeah, We should say you, you worked with Owen, Owen Morris, didn't you? So, so oh, that story yeah. um, is 
probably well, he taught you know, me. It's he probably t- first hand, so yeah. it's not as if that's just an apocryphal. No, no, no. He well, um, he taught me how to engineer mm, yeah. basically, and I mean, he was a you know sort of child prodigy. He was the same age as me, but had two or three years' experience. He went straight from, I think he bunked out of school and just got a job in a studio. Um, and I joined a few years later, and uh, he worked in this very small studio with very minimal equipment, and did everything different to what I'd sort of learned and been taught before. It was completely unique. And um, yeah, I owe him a big debt. I mean, he he was amazing at getting sounds in, in a very unusual way. And I kind of didn't realise how lucky I was to have that until many years later. And I re- realised I was sort of taking things that he'd done that had sort of gone into my subconscious, um, his approach to things. So yeah, absolutely. Mm, interesting. So uh, maybe we should have because I mean that's one of the interesting things about cancel on me. It has that great kind of breakdown and bridge, and then builds back up um, and does go a bit more gnarly. Um, maybe we should have a listen yeah. to, to that. I think that's one of the interesting things about Jack's songwriting at this stage as a 15-year-old, because each of the songs has so many sections to them, you know, that, and, and it's something that it, it really helps that you know, a song can have so many different bits going on. We, we should, if we had carried on listening to that early demo, it like goes into a full bongo like, <laughs> jazz freak Maybe we should out, return so. to that. I think the different sections was reined in a bit but right. when I joined the band. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of songs you do where you, you never come back to ideas from the first half and the second half of the song. I love that, though. The surprises of, that you put into structures. So Cancel On Me, um, the, the second song you think that you worked on together yeah. um, in the session. So it, it ended up being on that first EP and then you reworked the drums mm. um, and re-recorded the drums for the final version on the album. And how much further down the line was that? So the EP would have come out in, um, say, 2007, February uh, 2007. At least a year later. Mm. Yeah, so we recorded the first album end of 2008, wasn't it? Uh, um, yeah, at Conk. At Conk in Hornsey, North London. And yeah, I, yeah. as far as I remember, it is pretty much the same recording, yeah, apart from the drums. Um, mm. Mainly just to kind of, I think, to keep a more consistent sound throughout the album, really. Well, yeah, time. I think that's and, what we... Yeah. yeah um, so the, the, the drum sound on the first EP is, is more sort of... It's kind of like tighter, more polished yeah. sound, and then the sound of the first album is... Um, but slightly more roomy, a bit more like gritty. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, well, we I think we'd learned. Obviously, you guys had um, developed as players, and we'd kind of developed a sound collectively. Mm. And we talked more and had you know discussions about reference points, say the broken social scene, gu- mm. guitar sounds or drum sounds or whatever. Mm. So we kind of learned what each other liked and what we wanted to do over that period. And yeah, the recordings of from the chapel didn't sound the same mm. um, as where we'd ended up. Um, and 
to try and get some continuity to it because it was over a two-year period. Mm. Yeah, we redid the drums and remixed it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, a lot changes it. Even though you think it's a year or two, when you're a teenager, feels like a lot longer. I think. Yeah. You can be a whole different person when you yeah. come back to do your album. So. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Surin then when he re-recorded those drums would have been seventeen. No. Yeah. Um, you'd have grown as a <laughs> as a human being. Oh, uh, yeah, you no, know, physically, <laughs> you'd have been a stronger, stronger person. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and uh, two extra years of experience playing your instrument. I mean, that's. That's a big change, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, do, is it worth hearing the the reworked drums and to compare and contrast, or is it? This will be the original recording EP version of Council on Me from two thousand six. From two thousand six. Yeah. And it's not your fault again. And then the uh, the doesn't sound very different. (laughs) We didn't, (laughs) but I can see. I mean, I can totally understand that to get a consistency on the album sound that you might want to rework something as fundamental as the drums, so that it bedded in with all the other songs around it. And this will be the album version. A slightly like kind of darker no, sound drum yeah. the hi-hats are very different as well actually yeah. I really noticed that before yeah I think yeah. you can hear the differences yeah. you know, sounds great I mean is there anything more in Cancel On Me and the stems that, that we should dig into further or, or do you think we've dissected it um, enough there's I'd... one thing here which is another thing that we were into um, there's these well they're called washy R's <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll play it and see what they are. Um, It's great. This is like a journey of discovery back into the past. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds cool. Yeah, I have no idea where that would be in the journey. It's it's actually on this third chorus, and it was a series of layers we brought in, and I think it's a nod to our kind of slight fascination with some shoegazy textures there was a lot of that um trying to make riffs that sat back in the mix and you couldn't tell exactly what the constituent parts were yeah Uh, so it's a kind of nod to the valentines that kind of idea um little baritone guitar underneath yeah which has now been on every album we've ever made we were obsessed (laughs) with baritone after that Play that same section in context. It's, it's not particularly loud, but it just has a really nice texture in the background. We took those kind of ideas a lot further in other tunes, but I think that's the yeah. first time we referenced MVV maybe other than idea and, and put something in that along those lines. 
Sounds cool. Yeah, it does. Um, one of the um, distinctive parts of Bombay Bicycle Club is your vocal style. Um, and it seems as if it was there all along, you know, in the demos. So when you first started doing your demos, did you always sing in, in that way? I feel like when I hear the demos, they're a bit more chilled out. And I, I actually struggle to listen to the old stuff because of my voice. Because mm. I just think I sound so different mm. to, compared to recent albums. I don't yeah. know why. But. Well, I mean, you've been singing on stage and singing in studios for, you know, <clears throat> 10 more years. So, you know, that that's one of the reasons. I can remember going to a house party when I was like 16 or 17 and a girl coming up to me and being like, you're that guy that sounds like a sheep. <laughs> and then she started impersonating me. And I think I probably got a bit self-conscious about it after that. Yeah, understandably. But that's... it is strange. I do find it slightly uncomfortable listening to it now. But it sounds great, I think. And and clearly loads of people love it. No, and uh, but it is great because it is so distinctive. And that's one yeah. of the things that Jim particularly would know is distinctive elements that set people apart, isn't it? Uh, completely. And I think within the guitar arrangements, you talked earlier about how the two guitars interplay I think it's also, I don't, I'm not sure if this was consciously or, or subconsciously, but I think the way the guitars work together, um, it leaves a sort of a frequency hole for you to fit your voice in without having to strain it. Well, and, I think that, and I think that's really crucial to your, to your sound that you do and then in the studio. I mean, I remember messing around a lot of, lots of times with EQing the guitars to create more of a hole for the voice because... Mm-hmm. I didn't want you to have to force your vocals. Yeah. But they had to still be present and, you know, leap out the speakers or whatever your terms you want to use. Mm. And it creates such an intimacy for the listener, I think. No. And I mean, was this something that you were aware of in the band, Siren? No. That um, did you, as a, the rest of you, think about Jack's singing or? Um, yeah. I mean, we, we were aware that you definitely had a unique voice, which um, <laughs> I think. Yeah, maybe we're aware as slightly Marmite-ish. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I, I think I think more people loved it than hated it. I think um, it's interesting here listening to the lyrics as well because they're very heart on sleeve, much more so than our recent records. I guess that's when you when you're that age, you're you're probably less self-conscious than when you grow up and you think, oh, that's a bit embarrassing if I say that. But mm-hmm. they're very direct. That's just cancel on me. It's so um, like. There's nothing really figurative about it. Um, whereas now I think it's more imagery and subtlety. and mm. So that's definitely something that's changed. Yeah, I think you were quite uncomfortable doing vocals to start with in the studio, weren't you? And that's mm. very normal that you people would feel that because I, I wanted to break, make them clear. And, mm. and then if we wanted to then make them fuzzy or effecty, we'd do it afterwards. But I wanted the performance to be up front, not, not, not shouty, but just up front and present. And I think you naturally sort of veered away from that yourself and your demos yeah. you said to me once you say you I, I like recording my vocals like under the duvet and yeah, yeah. muffled and and it's like well that will never carry across what we've recorded with the band we have to get find a space for it and bring it forward more and it was, it was tricky for you to start with i think well it's probably i probably was aware of how heart and sleeve the lyrics were so maybe yeah. i was worried about making them really um easy to hear yeah i think recording vocals is something that it's the most sort of delicate part of a session. And I learned how to do it during these sessions and how to make myself comfortable. Um, and it, it ended up being, for me, some of the most enjoyable parts of a session because everything gets quiet and yeah. you'd ask everyone to leave the um, control room. Yeah. So it would just be one-on-one yeah. and a bit more intimate and no one else is listening to you. And 
that really calmed me down. And then I ended up sort of enjoying those those moments. Right, oh, good. I think it's important to for a producer to, you know, set the scene and make sure the person's comfortable. So Dust on the Ground was the next song we were going to listen to. Um, where does this come in this evolution then? So you've had your first sessions working together. Yeah, this would have been in the in the middle of the main album recording, wouldn't it? That's, yeah. So in, in, within the sort of two-year period towards the end, but the bulk of was recorded towards the end of that period. And I think this was, you know, halfway through that session, I, I would guess. Um, so we'd, we had a few tunes that we'd, we're happy with we're probably sort of halfway through the process um so i think in this song we can hear uh, the development of another trademark of bombay bicycle club which is the picking of the guitar as mm. opposed to the the strumming you know and that's kind of you know becomes part of the sound doesn't it and and it gets highlighted on on dust on the ground so this was two songs which we just joined together. So one of the songs is just that picking for about, I think at one point it was eight minutes long <laughs> and we used to play it live and yeah. it was instrumental. Um, I seem to remember the, the first time we played it live, so the whole eight minute version, I'm pretty sure Jim was actually at the gig as um, the star in Bethnal Green. I don't know oh, why yeah. I remember this, but I do. Yeah, I think I was. I yeah. think that was the very first time we played the song live, the whole full eight minute shebang <laughs> did you ask my opinion yeah. <laughs> that's probably, probably I think it's a single what do you think yeah. <laughs> wow so an eight minute instrumental that was part of the live set um that part of which ended up becoming dust on the ground jim probably said let's make this the outro of a song <laughs> let's keep it to about one minute long <laughs> and then you combine that with another song that was also part of the live set or, or something that had come the other i think it was just a demo yeah which was called dust on the ground i think so. right yeah, it was a very efficient way of combining the two. Mm. So the the instrumental never got recorded in that version. Um, th There's a demo of. Oh, it. there is. I think right. we have it. Don't oh, we? Oh, we right. Do. Okay. Yeah, so we get to yeah. hear the yeah. the eight minute or a little bit of the eight minute instrumental. <laughs> I'm into this. I think if I'd been at the star in Bethnal, <laughs> Bethnal Green, I'd have been Time like nodding my head. Thinking, yeah, this is really cool. Ah, <laughs> oh, where'd that eight minutes go? Yeah. Like, wow, what a good, I mean, they've got such balls to be able to do a, an eight-minute instrumental at the age. They're just, and just like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Love the rolling drums. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's probably a good time to fade out. <laughs> this is the painting of a completely different band, isn't it? They've got the kind of prog version of Bombay Bicycle yeah. Club that could have been that just did instrumentals. <laughs> no, in a parallel universe, um, that, that probably exists. No. I think, yeah, a lot. If you hear any of the demos, they've been reined in quite, quite a lot. Do you remember a conversation we had though? Because you, at some point around this point, mm. um, you were trying to convey an idea, and you you played an instrumental electronic piece that you were working on at home, yeah, as a reference. And 
and I and I, it was a really good tune. I said, oh, I really like the tune. What is it? I didn't know, you know, I don't know if it was another artist. And he said, oh, it's just stuff I've been doing at home. And I said, oh, so what? What do you do? And he went, oh, I just make these tunes just for my own sort of fun and amusement. And you had a, like an album's worth at least at the time. And you made me. I think you burnt me a CD of it, and I loved it. And I said to you, why don't you put more of this into Bombay stuff? Mm. And you said, oh, I, you, you, at the time you felt that they were two separate things. And, That's really interesting. And I said, well, you know, I think there's, there's, there's potential for this to come more into it, but at your own pace. And you weren't sure at that point. And I think the rest of our time as a band has been it getting closer and closer together. Yeah. Well, if you mm. think of the last couple of records mm. and yeah. the samples and the electronics. Is, yeah. I probably took your advice and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> but at your own pace, I mean, it took quite a few years. For yeah, that to but it, it is interesting listening to them in succession and hearing that. Mm. And then I think coming up to the present when we decided to take a break is when I thought that it had just any more than that and it wouldn't really be Bombay Bicycle Club, so it's time to step back. And I mm. think there was a conscious decision there. That's interesting. And, and you did Mr. Duke's... Yeah, toothless so you just and, go yeah. entirely to one side mm. rather than always trying to combine two quite different things. Yeah, because part of the appeal is this chemistry between the four of you. you know, Definitely. And that we've kind of been discussing in a way the two guitars and the drums and, and the bass, which we'll be discussing in a bit actually with a voice like this, I think. But with, with Dust on the Ground, so we've got the end part. Um, where's the front part from? I think there's a demo. Yeah, I think we have a demo. And yet, it's interesting because when we play Dust on the Ground, it yeah. starts with these really loud yeah. cymbal hits, which sound fantastic. Yeah, splashy hi hats. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're great. And they sound different to everything else as well. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of opening a mm. Bombay Bicycle Club song. Um, so you put these two songs together at some mm. point on Jim's suggestion? Or, no, or, I think no, that you'd, you decided you'd, to do that. I didn't think you? maybe we'd worked out that was the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think we realized the. What we just heard is had the potential to be a more like conventional song as opposed to the the previous mm. um, demo we played. But then we also thought there was something very cool in the, the that instrumental demo we played mm. a bit earlier. Um, yeah. So didn't want to lose that entirely. So yeah, kind of figured out a way to. I but, think we just added some really nice embellishments to this. So. Yeah, well, this is I think this has got again our um, exploring that whole sort of shoegazy thing on the yeah. riffs on the chorus which is made up of a few things. So if I'll just play the actual mix, or well, the session stuff. So 
those um, answer phrases are made up of of a, a few guitars and um, this fan guitar, which I was slightly obsessed with oh, at the yeah. time, which was uh, many years ago. I used to work with a, a guitarist called Steve Hillage, and um, he was a kind of prog rock god, and he joined a band called The Orb and played sort of weird guitar mm. stuff over at Ebo's and all sorts of things. And he bizarrely also was into really into Sonic Youth, and he tried to create these kind of distorted textures playing his guitar with different um, implements, <laughs> everything from kind of dildos to <laughs> whisks and all sorts of things. And um, I loved it. He used to do these weird, really weird sound effects on these kind of ambient techno tunes. And uh, there was a, a little personal fan in the studio, and I thought, oh, you could just mess around with that on the guitar and it, it provided this sort of super fast picking thing uh and it's really uh, cool I and so we, tr we tried it on a on a few things didn't we and uh we got this sound to stick over the top and it's on its own it sounds <laughs> pretty daft you can hear it whirring away there so does that. the fan itself hit hold, the strings yeah or? you hold the fan um on the edge of the strings and it just goes round them and sort of hits them right. a thousand times a Yeah, minute. faster than a finger could. Ex exactly. But it sort of ma makes it a very sort of smooth legato phrase. And we had a sort of Mellotron thing with it and a, another guitar, and it made this combination. That's another sound that we just ended up using on every record after that. As well. the, the Mellotron. <laughs> the Mellotron yeah. yeah, so. You're giving your secrets away now, Jim. Yeah. No. Stop using the, the fan guitar. At last. <laughs> you've gone through that stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, you've got so much experience to draw from, in a way, Jim. You know, these different uh, eras, different people. I mean, you'd have encountered Steve Hillage, uh, you know. When he was having a second era of yeah. of creativity, in a way, exactly. I, I I found a lot of people who were involved in the sort of early days of techno were a lot of people as well who were from the punk movement, and there was a lot of kind of um, even though the music didn't sound like it, a lot of the spirit of punk and a lot of early techno. And I knew the guys from Orbital quite well, and they and they were you know into punk music in mm. their youth and kind of came back to it, heard these new exciting sounds, and made music in a different way, but very much that spirit. Um, so I think you know I think it's natural in music to it, for it to go in in cycles and people get re-inspired as they hear new things after a few years go away for a while and come back with a new idea. Yeah, and then you're passing it on to another generation, you know. So they get to play with fans and, and, uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. More of a whisk man myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'd love to just play the start, very start of Dust on the Ground, the finished version, and um, just because I think it sounds great. Is that ancient love that you won't outgrow? It's the fee you pay. It's the debt you owe. Just seems to have a lot of attack to it, without actually being that loud. Yeah, sure. yeah. That you throw me down. And I am inches above the dust on the ground.
it's got um, the claptrap on it. That was another oh. thing I think we used a lot of, and that blew our minds, and we yeah. thought, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was too loud. I think I, I pushed for that being loud. And oh, I love I, it. I got that wrong. Yeah, it's there. You can hear it. we got to hear that. Um, if possible. Years before this, I'd done quite a bit of sort of trip-hop stuff, and I was really into these trigger boxes that you could trigger from anything, but often used to trigger them off drum kits, and they only had like a few sounds in them. They're really basic things. And uh, it was a kind of reference to Martin Hannett and what he did with Joy Division, like um, recording the drum parts individually and triggering these things, these weird sounds. And um, so I was obsessed with these boxes, and I think I got, I think I overused them a bit. Um, <laughs> but we had, yeah, these sounds here on behind the drums. Well, that even has the she's lost control. Yeah, and there we go. Um, and then we have this other thing, which was a Simmons claptrap. So they're in dust on the ground. They're in a lot of yeah. stuff. And we, yeah. we used that live as well, and we just got obsessed with it. Yeah. Sounds very, so when Seren, Seren has a kind of trademark, very machine-like fill, very fast, but very regimented. And when that... They, I don't think they have any velocity on them. No. It's no. always 100%. <laughs> yeah. So when you're doing this fast fill, it just sounds so like in your face and, and like a machine. So I love it. Yeah, it does sound great. Yeah, I could easily see how you could <laughs> get obsessed <laughs> Easy with Easy to overuse. Yeah. Well, let's hear that in context. Let's hear that fill being used. I it's that ancient love Excellent. It's a great sound. I mean, bands establish their sounds just on that, don't they? And there's a whole era of music that is just that from that drum clap. Yeah, I'm all for it. But that's the interesting thing. I mean, the way that you use these different eras from your different experiences and tastes and combine them into a sound that does just create a distinct Bombay Bicycle Club sound. No, it, it, you wouldn't necessarily think on a cursory listen that somehow you're combining elements of Martin Hannett production with elements of Sonic Youth, with the hip hop that kind of helped inspire the band. You know, all of that is in there, but it's it's quite distinctive as Bombay Bicycle Club. It is funny because whenever we like do something where you have like a playlist of your influences, people are always like, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. But when you listen to our music, you, I don't know, there's something that happens, I think it becomes very... Maybe it's the pop element of it that it it makes those things a bit more subtle. Mm. But if but all those influences are there, um, yeah. and they do seem to take people by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. But well, I mean, it, I would say that at this stage of development, it's not as if you are chasing the pop sound in any way. I mean, it, it it's it's here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's quite rock in many ways. But as we move on from dust on the ground to always like this, we we can hear and see this this change. You know that that has come through the two years that you've been working together as as a band, um, evolving Bombay Bicycle Club. Because with always like this. We hear all these other elements, I think. And um, if the title of the album, which is I Had the Blues But I Shook Them Loose, was inspired by a Tribe Called Quest lyric, yeah. no, initially nobody would connect the two together. I mean, obviously, you 
listened to a Tribe Called Quest, you liked Tribe Called Quest, but a lot of people listen to things and think, right, well, that's what I'm going to make. No, and, and yeah. that's not what you attempted to do. But with Always Like This, we get a much broader selection of sounds going on. And, and as we hear with the bass, when that starts at the song, it's, it's very melodic, but pretty funky. And, and it brings in a, a whole different aspect to Bombay Bicycle Club that has grown over the, the following yeah, decade. It's kind of a sign of things to come. Mm. It's the first time I think we introduce break beats and, loop, and drum loops, mm -hmm. which we then have this sort of delicate process of how do we merge those with live drums and which way do we do it. And we've kind of been perfecting that ever since, how to sort of merge those two things. I think we also that with this one, we there was a lot more discussion and and trial and error of how do we actually record this. Yeah. If we look, go back to when we earlier were talking about cancel on me, it was we're going to get a live take. That's going to be the basis of everything, and uh, so we, we need to get some sounds that are pretty much what they're going to be, and then we may do some embellishments. With this, we sat down and you had already had a really good demo and lots of ideas, and it was how are we going to get the band to be part of this and what's the strengths of the two yeah. things? How much are we going to use from sequencing? How are we going to loop things? All these different techniques were coming in as in, in terms of how we would get this recorded in the best way, very unlike the, the early sessions. Mm. And it definitely took the, this was the song that took the longest to finish, I think, because of that. Yeah. I seem to remember. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's, it's quite bare in some ways, but, a lot for, but, it, but it actually getting the bits right, I think, took more time to work out the best combination. That's interesting because my, my memory of finally nailing it was you, I think we'd been trying loads of things and you got in the seat in front of the desk and just started muting things. Right. And it sounded great. And I think that's something that I've learned. Sometimes it's so simple, but you just just be brutal about muting things. It's very hard to do that, isn't it? Because you get attached. When you spend yeah. a long time recording it, you get attached to everything you do. You want everything in there. Yeah, yeah. and then you have, yeah, you have to sort of go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so did did this emerge in the same way? Did you do a demo of this? Um, yeah, there's a demo of this, which I remember playing to one of my friends, and he said, oh, it's going to be a really good B-side. <laughs> and it ended up being like, I think it's our most listened to song on Spotify still. Right, so. still. I haven't let that down yet. Is so. he the head of A&R or something like yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> it came along very last minute, didn't it? I think it was the last song to arrive yeah. on the, from the first album. So. so this is the demo. Right. This is the home demo. With mumble lyrics. And so with that like this, that's it. You looped that. As yeah, that's it. Yeah. I probably ran out, you know, ran out of ideas. Yeah. I'll oh, just right. copy and paste. And so this whole drum pattern is you using samples, or this is me in my bedroom, I think. Right. But okay. under, I think underneath there, there's a break beat, or that came later. But there's definitely a prominent break beat. It's right here. That's some chopped up samples. So what is the equipment set up at this point in your bedroom, Jack? It's my brother's drum kit, which I 
ended up kind of stealing from him, which I still feel bad about. Um, <laughs> the reason I'm not a massive drummer is <laughs> you stopped me in my tracks. Uh, yeah, just one microphone and some guitars. And again, it was that thing of, ha I think the limitations was what made me creative. And I think as you progress as a musician and become more successful and get a bigger studio and all these things, you still romanticize that time in your life where it was really simple and you were having to really think hard of how to try and get the results you wanted with limited resources. Mm. And so did you have keyboards in there as well? Or just the guitars? No, it's the, the, all the electronics is kind of just mouse and keyboard taking a long time. Right. But there's guitars and drums. And yeah. And uh, is that a bass guitar playing that bass line? Yes. Yeah, it is. So you yeah. had a bass guitar, an electric guitar, um, and some pedals and uh, looping. And a lot of free time. And uh, <laughs> a lot of free time when you should have been working on your A-levels, <laughs> I, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a great demo. I mm. mean, it's already got most of what we, we ended up with as an idea in in that. And the, what we just talked about, about limitations, making it work harder to get more interesting things because you really use every piece of equipment to the max. Mm. The same as what I was saying earlier about a band coming in, they've got an amp they're really bored of, but they've got the best out of it. It's going to have a really cool sound, I think, mm. at the start yeah. point. And it's the same, you've got so much out of your limited setup. It's, it's you know, because you're creative and you keep trying things. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's great. I mean, it must have been exciting to think... So and uh, you know, oh, I get to play that rhythm. This is great. This is like, another. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember very distinctly um, Jack playing us this demo. We were all in the same room with our manager, and just yeah, instantly we, we all just got very excited because <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, as I say, I think yeah, I think it was the last track to um, be written for the first album. I think we all kind of felt that maybe the album just needed a little something that it didn't have at that point, and then yeah, we heard this. First time I've always liked this. I think we were all like, yes, this is exactly what it needs. Which has kind of <laughs> happened on every album. Yeah. The key song that we release first always happens mm. weeks before mm. we're meant to finish. So it's obviously like a panic yeah. sort of last minute thing that uh, like creates something, I think. Yeah. So what do you think helped inspire Always Like This then? I think what? I just started listening to a lot of Afrobeat. Mm. I, the bass just comes from, I was a bass player before Bombay. So I was a jazz bass player. Right. So maybe this was, I finally had the confidence to express that. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I was a bit shy about it before. That's probably what happened. Yeah. I remember always thinking, oh, this is a great way to learn the guitar and that all people should learn bass first. Because when you're learning guitar as a kid, your guitar teacher's just teaching you chords and they get stuck in your head for a long time and it's quite hard to get out of that. And if you learn the bass, you just learn the notes and then you kind of invent your own, which I always found more interesting. So I always said, don't even think about learning the guitar. You should learn the bass. Yeah, that's and interesting. And I think that's that, that definitely comes across in the chords you, and, and the inversions that you use because they often, on a first listen, I think the tunes are deceptively simple and they sound like simple two or three chord things. But when you actually find out what you're doing, mm. they're never that. And the the inversions and the way the chords are put together are much more complex than that and more subtle. And uh, I think that's a real strength as well. Mm. So having got that demo, how did you go about recording? always like this we did some takes but we also um I'm going to show you the drum stuff there's a there's live drums there is a break cut up uh which I think originated in your demo yeah and we we built it up with overdubs more than just a performance and we even looped some sections because the groove was very hypnotic and we just let you play for ages and mm. get into a feel and then we just took bits and looped them so there's a, a real combination of techniques of recording the drums on this tune 
So we have the, the sort of live stuff. And then there's a break with it. Oh. Together. And then we just some ride stuff over the top. So this is what the beat ended up as. It's got a real wonkiness to it, which yeah. I love, which yeah. is sometimes you... That's, I think, why you're saying we looped it, because you can't do this every time. Like, we captured something and then just thought, it's got a certain wonkiness to it that we want to just preserve. Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult to achieve Absolutely. That. It's not remotely gridded. It's, um, it's very... It's, yeah, it's woozy. Yeah. <laughs> Seasick. Yeah. But I, I think that's its strength. Um, and, obviously, and on this one as well... Um, I think this is the first tune where we'd sort of set up completely different sounds for a different section because the bridges go to a very different sound, and um, which is this section. Oh, yeah. That sounds very, like... Very open floor tone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So, yeah, and I think it's the first time we'd really push that idea of, well, this section needs to sound completely different to the previous section. Mm. So we get... And a sequence kick in there. That's a groove. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, so this is just two years apart, but I think you're already... This is kind of where we kept going with this kind of way of making music and really getting into like the intricacies of it. And there were obviously some songs we did later where it was get in a room and sure, just play. But sure, sure. I think I really enjoyed this process of yeah fine-tuning and well it became then it became part of your arsenal of ways of doing stuff didn't it yeah. so you then you could you had the freedom to choose and borrow from each i think we started yeah. off in one place got to this point and then so the next album it's like well, okay this song how do we want to do this rather yeah. than it has to fit in one of these things there's many different approaches yeah definitely um you were talking about the bass do you want to hear mm. some bass as well I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, hearing these things isolated because um, it shows the, it definitely shows the the different um, aspects of what you're creating musically, you know, and how it could be taken down a different road each time. I think we always loved trying to play songs in different ways, and we started as we got bigger. We had to keep doing radio sessions where we'd be in a room like this, and you could only fit acoustic guitars in. Mm. So suddenly you'd be playing always like this, but on two acoustic guitars. And again, that, those limitations were fun. And that's what made us end up doing an acoustic record for our second album. Yeah. And I think that's why we love doing remixes so much, because again, there's another interpretation of something you're doing. And I think we were just always aware that if you have the skeleton of a song that's strong enough, then you can really do whatever you want with it. It will, it will still be that sort of bare bones yeah, yeah, it's interesting. As long I mean, as that's good enough. I mean, maybe we could hear each part build up as it comes in. I mean, almost... On a particular be, section? Yeah, yeah, would you be able to... Uh, yeah, if I... Um... So we get an idea of what each, each in, member's in theory. doing. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of an instrumental section after the verse. If we add the bass in... That was cool. Uh, 
and so who would be that doing that guitar there? That's Jamie. That's Jamie. And other guitar tracking the bass. And is that you on? Yeah, I say you, Jack. So people know. this guitar oh, yeah. this I don't remember how we did this I'm not sure if this is a guitar it sounds like a is it a micro synth or a pog um, or something yeah I think it must be it sounds kind of like a clav is it micro synth yeah yeah that's cool I love it it's funny hearing that very slowed down reverse cymbal or whatever it is because yeah. there's a version of this song where we just slowed everything down do you remember that we yes. very speeded it yeah never like that and it's we should try i'd wonder if we can find it but so in a studio you can kind of accidentally press a button and the whole track will half, be half slowed speed. down half yeah. speed so it's like you're underwater and i think someone pressed that button by mistake but we all sort of just went into this trance and thought this is the coolest thing i've ever heard <laughs> i guess we'd never heard a song slowed down that much mm -hmm. and we thought it was incredible so we released it we just didn't do anything else we just released it like that right what version was that called it's called never like that right i think it was the b-side to the single yeah. wow and no we did add some view things i've got yeah. some chains i've got an image of, recording of some chains, someone yeah. standing in a hallway with just a huge i think do we order in a huge amount of chains and just started rattling them yeah, on a, I think so. in a corridor yeah it's the kind of thing you'd make us do <laughs> <laughs> now put these on <laughs> So this is our weird um, bass and weird clavier thing. Oh, with a guitar. these elements this way is really interesting considering the two or three year evolution of the band mm -hmm. you know if we were to go back two years to that first recording session with you Jim oh, yeah. you know of, of a band coming together going from a young lad with some demos that he'd been working on since the age of 11 or something and then getting to the point where he found some people to share them with who could work with him on them and then taking them to a, an experienced producer who'd worked with loads of different kinds of people and I, we, I don't think we could have recorded this way when we first started it would have been no. too confusing yeah. because where would you start and and the demos weren't as evolved and I think we'd collectively gain confidence and patience with each other as in, I think that's really important yeah, yeah you know we had faith that something good would come out of the process by trying different things we'll yeah. get there in the end kind of thing and definitely we, were, we didn't you know when you first start out it's like oh, everything has to work and more yeah nerves and you do spend some time gaining trust and getting to know each other and for the band getting to know how studios work i think mm. yeah and us gaining the confidence to be like can we try this whereas before yeah. we might just be like that might be a really bad idea so i'm going to not even suggest it yeah that as well the idea of being confident enough to say things to, yeah. to a group in that environment it, it really is a tricky environment for a lot of people to kind of relax and open up you were very actually i remember you you wanted to make it as much like home as possible you didn't mm. you know you spoke about coming into these often sterile environments and having to sort of try and make them your own definitely in the early days we just turned up at a studio and tried to get on with it and yeah you learned what to do yeah mm. 
And there's other things in here as well, which I'd, I'd forgotten about. There's, there's a piano. sustained piano, yeah. Yeah. And an organ. Wow. <laughs> These songs are so <laughs> versatile. <laughs> Tonight, at the end of the pier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do all, uh, all, all Bombay songs like this? <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Amazing. And that evolution um, is actually really quick, I think, in just the two to three years, um, because the spotlight was on you from quite a young age, you know, that, that there was a real momentum to what you were doing. The idea that you know, Jamie entered that competition, you won that competition, it got you to play at the V Festival, and then you're only 15. And then that in turn led you to work with Jim, and, and um, suddenly things were all going really, really fast. And and this band was a going concern, you know, to the point that you could actually think you could think about this all day at school and then do it all evening at home and not really worry about school that much. Sure, yeah, because well, it's viable. I think it may have been part of the reason we did that acoustic second record because it instantly got rid of second album syndrome. Right, because people weren't like, oh, what's like comparing it because you couldn't. It was a completely different sounding record totally agree and there yeah. was something like we controlled that rather than trying to recreate it and then failing so i think that worked out quite well for us because yeah. i think we did feel a bit of pressure which yeah. every band does after they release their debut album yeah that's really interesting almost like a pause it allowed you to illustrate other aspects of of sound and music that you're interested in and enjoyed yeah. creating um but allowed you to I guess in the background, work on aspects that were in always like this to a point where you were more confident and more capable as opposed to realizing what you wanted to to do. That's amazing, and that shows a certain maturity, doesn't it? Beyond beyond your years you know, <laughs> of seventeen, eighteen at that point. It's probably uh, Jim's idea. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say um, also getting to work with Neil as a collaborator on oh, Jamie's definitely. dad was a, you know, a different um, person there helping. And, and that was, a, I think, a great thing for you to do. And, 100%. and he, you know, obviously been very influential in, in the early years. And for him, I think it was great that he made that record with you. It sounds amazing. And Not that, but just, just sending him demos from day one yeah. since I met Jamie. And yeah. And yeah. So yeah. you had another uh, set of ears, uh, another mature set of ears like Jim's in a way that, that could... Yeah. Um, support you no. yeah who was happy to say like yeah keep the weird stuff don't change mm. you know like that's cool and a bit of confidence which was really sort of worthwhile mm. and he would pop in during the you know some of the recordings on the first album definitely know, see how we're getting on so it sounds like it, you're very lucky to be in such a supportive environment in a way yeah for um, sure surrounded by people who who would just encourage you to do this stuff like your dad buying that stuff from PC PC World, World, yeah. yeah. Where would we be without that? Yeah, amazing, fantastic. Um, one thing that I really like in Always Like This is the is the pan guitars, the the kind of call and response between the two guitars at one point. So that, and I I've always wondered whether that was you, Jack, and Jamie. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's physically like a call and response between the two of us, and we do it live so that you get a visual sort of us talking to each other. And yeah. I think we did that quite a lot. Yeah, we, on, on a few tunes before that, but leading up to that, we'd we'd had you two doing that kind of thing, but not maybe not as extreme as in that song. But yeah. yeah, and also that naturally leaves a space in the middle for other things. Yeah, mm. definitely. Are we able to hear that call and response just to illustrate it? Is it easily done? <laughs> Thank you. 
So who's left and who's right? <laughs> That's just where you got your headphones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no idea. Trying to listen for mistakes. <laughs> so that I can not have that one. I can't remember either actually. There wasn't wasn't there a third guitar part that then you I think you added in, or it was your idea, Jim. It's like oh, a very high whammy yeah. bar. Actually, yeah, there's this as well. That was something we added in the studio. I love that sound. And it's is that actually Jim playing, or is that... No, no, it's, no, no, it's one of you. Yeah, yeah, it works really well. Well, I think we've done a great job of illustrating the many strengths of Bombay Bicycle Club uh, with this. This is so exciting to hear it all broken down in this way. Um, so we've got some of our stock questions that we ask everybody who comes on tape notes and then some questions from people who've been in touch via social media because we told people that you were going to come in. So the, the stock questions um, are hopefully useful to people who might be making their own uh, music. So the first of those is what piece of advice would you give to any aspiring musician or producer? Something that you might stick by? I would say to producer, do as much as you can and, and as varied genres as you can. I think it's very easy to get sort of pigeonholed into doing one thing and, and, and do that in extreme. But you learn so much meeting different people and you never know where opportunities are going to and connections are going to come from and what you're going to learn from them. So just, you know, take on those offers and try other things and you'll be amazed how much that feeds into what you naturally want to do. Yeah, mm, definitely. Yeah, I'm always struck by how open-minded producers seem to be. You know, when you look at their history of, of work, and that is the key thing, you know, is that yeah. you can't say, oh, no, I just do drum and bass, mate, you know, or whatever it is. You know, you've got to take the opportunities when they arise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we could always say, like, hey, Jim, we want it to sound a bit like this. And before we'd even finished our sentence, he'd turn around and be twiddling knobs and know what to do. And I think you need to have an incredibly eclectic taste and have lots of experience like that. As a band who, as we've already talked about, had the spotlight on them from quite a young age, what advice would you give to a new up-and-coming band? Wait, or just go with the flow? I don't know. I, I don't know. I just think every so often you get a you get a band or an artist coming along and making ridiculous statements like, uh, you know, we want to be like the biggest band in the world. And I, I just think... <laughs> If that's your like priority, I think you've just got things totally the wrong way around, and, I, and everything's kind of. I guess we've been very lucky in some ways. That everything's kind of happened very organically for us. Literally, just started out something, a hobby, something we did for fun in our spare time, mm. and we were very lucky that it's turned into something that has become a. Don't want to use the word job, career, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just think. Yeah, becoming like a big artist should never be your priority. Just focus on like being the best musician you can be and focus on being as versatile a musician as you can be. Yeah. Mm. I agree with that. Interesting. Is there one plug-in or piece of kit you really love to use? Anything that you always have to hand? It's interesting in this conversation, we've heard a few things that you said, oh, actually, that's ended up being uh, used on, on all our recordings. Yeah, that's loads. Baritone guitar. 
a lot of our bass lines are quite melodic. Mm. And so the baritone's this wonderful bridge between a bass and a guitar, where if you're listening on speakers that don't have much bass, you can still hear the melody come through. Mm. So get yourself a baritone. Jim? For me, I think um, I like things you can plug in and fiddle around with. So I've got tons of guitar pedals, and I love to put things through them and just in different combinations and mess around because you never do the same thing twice. And there's one bit of kit, just studio kit, that I love is a thing called a Levelor, and it's a really harsh limiter, and it comes in a little rack unit, and it's based on this old 70s PA called a Shaw Levelock. It was a really cheap way of people like doing public address in conferences and stuff, but when you turn it up, it distorts in a really cool way. And so a company in America made it into a little little module you can stick in a rack, and I use it on loads of stuff, and it drives in a really great way. You can get a plug-in version of it. And you that. can get a plug-in version of it. But <laughs> I, as you say, I love school, so I like yeah. the, the box you can fiddle with. <laughs> when writing, do you consider how a song will translate live, or do you not worry about that? Recently, we haven't worried about it, and it's meant that when we do start rehearsing for live shows, it becomes quite an ordeal. So I think it is something good to think about. But especially the last few albums, we were so in the production of things and sounds that we didn't think about it at all. Um, whereas the stuff we've been listening to today is the opposite. Mm. I mean, the live version dictated the studio version. So we've kind of swapped it around. Mm. Yeah. Like the way we recorded our last album, So Long See You Tomorrow, it was, I don't know if we recorded any of the tracks with the four of us just playing in a room. No, we didn't. I think it was literally maybe each of us just recording individually. Um so then, yeah, when it had when it came to uh, having to perform those songs live, we had to, yeah, it took quite a while to actually work out how we were gonna do it with the four of us playing. And I mean, I have to relearn the songs that I've written because you, you play the part that you've written so quickly and quickly record it, and that's the end of it. And so by the time you get into the studio to do it properly, I'm having to I keep rewinding and hearing it and trying to remember what the notes are, and I'm basically learning my own song at that point. Yeah. So is that something that you might change or, or will you continue to? Knowing me, I'd, no, no. I'd be stubbornly <laughs> just keep doing it the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> and with regard to the mixing of um, I Had the Blues, who, who mixed it? Um, mainly a guy called Barney, um, Barney Bonacott. He did a fantastic job, but there was a few songs that we'd done just end of the night rough mixes while we were making the record. And we sort of love something about them. So, but they were just done very quickly so we could listen to it the next day. So we revisited a few of those. I think there's three songs we went back to and um, did a better version of those rough mixes, went back to the same studio to conk and set the desk up the same as we had and then just refined a few bits we wanted to and made sure we could hear all the vocals and all the normal things you do. But they were based around those very quick rough mixes. Mm. Um, and the rest, yeah, was, was Barney. Well, I think one of the hardest things about making a record is getting over your attachment to previous versions, and that happens all the time. It, whether it's a demo mm. or whether it's a first mix of something or a second mix, you go home and listen to it so much that you get incredibly attached, and I think that can be dangerous, especially when it's a demo. And I know people that don't do monitor mixes now because they know the band's going to get attached to it. So that when, oh, right. they, when they start to mix, they're going to have all these references from something that the guy did in five seconds. Yeah. And he doesn't want to, you know, that to be the final product. But it's just bands get attached. That's what happens. And it's really hard to, to get away from it. 
maybe you shouldn't listen to things so much. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that we should, should stop be... listening to our own <laughs> yeah, yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, we've done it. That's yeah. <laughs> all I listen to. <laughs> and uh, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how did recording this album uh, influence future albums? I mean, obviously, this is your debut album, so it's going to have an effect one way or the other. Um, but, I mean, that, we're going back in time, 10 years, to the release of this record. You know, is this something that you've thought about much in those 10 years? Well, for me, it was the first time learning about like doing it properly and not just messing around in your bedroom. So, and that's not just about sounds. It's about like thinking about the craft of a song. And, you know, when we were in a rehearsal and Jim would say, I think this part should be shorter and this, we should extend this. And all of that stuff was new to us. So we learned, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify how much we learned from it because it was mm. the first time for us. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, we've got some questions from um, our regular Tape Notes listeners. Um, the first of them is from George, who got in touch via Twitter, uh, to ask, were any of the songs on Floors originally intended for this album before getting stripped back? So was there any material that could have uh, been on this record that you saved for Floors, or was Floors a, a separate? No, Floors was all written afterwards. Mm. Floors had lots of song. well, a few songs from I Had the Blues, Mm. but just acoustic versions of them, like from playing them in radio sessions, but mm. not the other way around. Mm. Um, Jemima, Penzance, uh, there are loads of really cool sounds on Autumn. What did you use to create the synth swells? Can I can't remember. remember. I think that's a demo sound. It's, well, yeah, there's a lot of that. It's based around a demo. Probably the most demo-based tune that we yeah. did. I think we just did redid some things in the studio that... Didn't quite cut it, but it's very much based on your demo. I can strangely remember exactly what the sound is, which is rare, but it's a it's called a DX7. Is that right? It's like an yeah. FM synth, yeah, 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 but yeah, it's a Fruity yeah. Loops version of it. So Amazing. Amazing yeah. that I can remember that. Um, Billy from New York. I love the interplay between the guitar parts on this album. What's your general approach to the instrumentation of your guitar parts? Do you start with the rhythm guitar and arrange around that, or is it written at the same time? It's all written at the same time. That part at the end of... Uh, dust on the ground I would actually just play on one guitar and then we'd split them into the two parts right but yeah a lot of it's written in the demo form and then I don't think when we were never a band that would like get together and jam and would, right. you, would you agree like it's forget yeah. especially in these early days mm. um, a couple of questions for Jim Ryan from Kilburn uh, what effects did you use on the vocals dust on the ground especially sounds amazing um, I think it would have been a, a combination of some studio rack reverbs and some plugins, and it, it would have it within that. I can't remember the exact combination, but mm. there would have been some form of stereo harmonizer, some form of gated reverb, and then maybe some natural room recorded, and 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 some other kind of reverb in the background. There would have been a combination of things, because I think I was at the point of still being attached to some studio rack kit, but moving more into plugins all the time. So it was probably a combination of them. Yeah. I remember spending a lot of time in toilets. You but seem to always love the sound of a tiled bathroom. We, we did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, especially, I mean, actually on the next album we worked together in Hamburg, we did all, of, did, the vocals yeah, there, did all yeah. the vocals in the bathroom. But I the think. toilet in Conk as well, we did, fond yeah, memories. Yeah, which one? We might have done 
dust in the ground. It's that ancient love that just moves along. So we can picture a toilet in so Kong Studios, possibly. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that is the toilet on this one. It sounds too dry, doesn't it? I should be a connoisseur by now. But I'm not I don't sure know which is, toilet this is. I don't is. think it is. Should we, should we start again? Because I don't think that, that's not yeah. a toilet, that yeah. one. There were ones. I can't remember which ones we did in the toilet. Yeah. So that we yeah we put some drive on it. Um, it's that ancient love, and it sounds like we put the reverb of a chorus echo, an old Roland tape delay that has a built-in spring so reverb. Slight, even when you're gone, well, I met you right, which sounds like that on its own. But I kept you wrong, and I must wait until I found the ground that you're walking on. Sounds quite cold, doesn't it? Just... So it's the distortion part of the lead vocal stem. Yeah, it is. Cool. But I, th I think that's a, a plug-in that we just okay. put on to drive it. And then we fed that combination into, sounds like a chorus echo spring to me. Mm. I'm sure someone will write in and say, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another question for Jim. Sam from Kingsley. Do you have a typical starting point when working with someone new? How did your approach, say, differ when working on this album to Arctic Monkeys or Adele? Um, well, normally you, you meet the artist once you've heard some demos or seen a, um, a gig. And then it's just a case of sitting down over a cup of tea and just chatting about what you like and don't like about, say, the demos and how you'd like to record and thinking of reference points of music that the artist likes or what they want to try and do with their record so it starts very much as a, normally as a conversation and then you normally then do a trial workout together and just mm. see if you if your ideas are compatible um with this particular scenario we've just talked about earlier we didn't really sit down and chat much before we went away for this weekend to this residential studio and just started and just saw what we could do um, and the conversation about all those things evolved over spending time together but that's the only thing that was sort of different about it. Yeah, yeah, and I guess with each artist, you've got to take a different approach. And yeah, you know. and, and I think you, I think you find out quite soon in the process how much you need to do. Um, some people are actually very self-sufficient and just need a a sounding board, um, and some people want you to do loads and help arrange and bring people, other people in, and drive it a lot more. Uh, just, to, I think you have to find that out quite early on how much of a role you need to play within it to get the mm. best out of it. Yeah, well, I mean, cl clearly, I think, though, you have a great uh, facility to be able to get on with people and, and help nurture these amazing talents that you've worked with, you know, because it could be could be a really negative experience. You know, you do hear stories about people going into their first proper recording session mm. and it's being a disaster and everything going wrong. And um, I think ultimately, um, obviously, if you're the producer on the session, in sometimes you have to lead the session, but... As I said, I think before, it's not about my ideas. Um, ultimately, it's their sort of face on the cover, for one of a better phrase, and it's they have to go out and do the interviews and talk about their music and, and want to go on stage and perform it um, in a way that's representative. So ultimately, it's their decision, but you try and give advice or nudge it in directions where needed to make it better if you can and bring out the best of what they can do. Mm. Well, it's, it did a fantastic job there jim i think um so jim i mean how did you become a producer uh well i i went down a very traditional route um i started working uh, as a t-boy for owen morris in a very small studio near cambridge and um, then i moved to london and started 
gradually getting sessions to engineer myself. I knew I wanted to be a producer, but it, back in those days, it was a very hierarchical ladder. You had to move up mostly, and you either were you either went through the studio system or you were a, an ex-member of a successful band who dabbled in production or maybe on the sidelines. And uh, it took a long while, much longer than I'd wanted to, but um, I got to work on lots of different things in different roles. And then eventually someone that I met, um, things went well and they had faith and gave me a budget to make make some records with people on my own. And uh, it was amazing and terrifying at the same time. And if a few of those things sort of did well, then you get the chance to do more. And that's really how it worked. Yeah. And what what made you think a producer? Yeah, that's what I want to be. Well, like most, I think probably like most producers, I started off playing in bands when I was a kid and I never enjoyed being in the limelight and doing the gigs as much as doing the recordings. So I knew from, well, from some teenage years that I'd probably end up helping make records rather than be a performing musician. Um, and I think I've made the right decision there. Um, well, it's worked out, hasn't it's it? It's worked out yeah. right, yeah. And, uh, and it's been brilliant hearing these tracks broken down in this way and going back to 2009 um, and going kind of reliving the Bombay Bicycle Club journey uh, once more. And it seems a good thing to do because you're back thinking about new Bombay Bicycle Club music. I, I was thinking thought. earlier, it's funny, the kind of conversations that we've been having, because it is 10 years this year, is the kind of stuff that when you're like a really old, like old rocker talking no, about your first yeah. album, but we're like we're not even thirty. Yet. Yeah, I know they're still in their twenties. It's, it's, that's mad. It's well, mad, but it's great. We're doing like a tour, of just playing I Had the Blues. So you're mm. like calling it an anniversary tour, and nothing makes me feel older than doing an anniversary tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can understand that, and it and it is funny. I mean, you're still in your twenties, and you're doing the anniversary tour. Um, and really, that's a celebration. It's not a nostalgia trip. It's not a kind of a trying to revitalize a, a dying career. It's just a bit of like we fun. wanted to go and play at Brixton Academy rather than doing like, I don't know, the cheesy anniversary tour of like a massive venue. We just want we I think we miss a bit of that like energy that we had back then. And mm. I'm really looking forward to playing those songs again. Yeah. And that could well inform the future of the band, you know, that nice experience revisiting those those approaches. Could do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming in to Jack and Surin and Jim. Uh, it's been fantastic. Um, we should leave with some music, I think. Um, what should we go with? Um, revisit one of the songs we've, or just play another one? Play another one, I or think. Play another I'd one. play The Giantess. Yeah. Because actually that was the one where I remember we finished and me and Jim were like, that was really fun. We should just make an album just like that. <laughs> so I think we really yeah. enjoyed making that one. Yeah. Right. Very Excellent. Exciting. It could be another chapter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a little bit of Giantess then from Bombay Bicycle Club. Uh, thanks again once more. If you want to ask a question on a future episode, head over to our Instagram page where you can find out who we've got coming up and also see behind-the-scenes photos of the podcast being recorded. If you've enjoyed this episode, there are a number of different ways to help support the podcast. You can subscribe and leave us a review, spread the word by telling your friends about us, but most importantly, you can donate. Head to our website, click on Donate, and give whatever you fancy. I'm John Kennedy. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Goodbye.